Hello and welcome to an all new series of the Sitcom Club. After our summer break, we're back for the autumn and the winter. This is Hey Ho Moon Cat and Co. Joining me today is your old pal Ocho. Hello. We have a couple of other guests who will be joining us momentarily more about them in a moment. And throughout this series, we will be finally working our way through the requests pile. However, not before we tie up a previous loose end, and that is we return to a particular show which we covered on the sitcom club some months earlier, and we left it halfway through its run. And today we come back to ever-decreasing circles for seasons 3, 4, and the Christmas finale of 1989. Also with us from Sitcom Lover's Corner blog is G. Baker. Hello! So, this week we are discussing, or rather we are returning to, a show that we talked about a few months back, Ever Decreasing Circles. And the first time we spoke about it, we spoke about Series 1 and 2, and now we're coming back to reach the end of the show, which is Series 3 and 4, and a feature-length Christmas special from 1989. Ocho, I think that you had alluded to this when we were talking about Series 1 and 2 before, that you felt that Series 3 and 4, perhaps the characters became rather more sort of, I suppose, broad I suppose what you would say? Well there's a change of personnel behind the scenes. I think we alluded to in part one but Sidney Lotterby is replaced with Harold Snowd. The reason being he was not giving enough direction to one of the principal cast. Series one and two are kind of like I remember see a tangent, I remember somebody complaining about something Dennis Norton said about Hancock's Half Hour saying it's not a sitcom, it's a novel. The complaint be how dare you imply that novels are a more legitimate way of expressing oneself than sitcoms. But I know what Norden meant. And series one and two of Ever Decreasing Circles are a novel. There's definitely, hesitate to use the phrase, character arcs. One episode picks up immediately where the other one ends. It's a serial in some ways. And series three is a sitcom. You know, step above the average sitcom, but it's a more straightforward sitcom, and series four is Terry and June. No, no wrong with Terry and June, of course, I'm a big fan. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll switch Terry and June for There's No Place Like Home, because hey, I've never heard anybody now, say anything nice about that. <laughs> no, we actually, we, we are going to do No Place Like Home at some point. There's a particular episode that we're looking for and we can't find it yet. But I know what you mean, and I'm going to sort of put forward a counter-argument and then undo it. I'm going to say that there's nothing wrong with ever-decreasing circles and Terry and June type sitcoms existing in the same universe. However, to then undo that point, I think it's probably fair enough to say that if you expect ever-decreasing circles to be as it was in series one and two, then you don't suddenly expect it to have turned into Terry and June or No Place Like Home by series four. Gee, do you agree that it becomes a more broad sitcom in series three or four? Is that something you see happening? I, yeah, I would. I do think it feels a bit more traditional sitcom-y in a way, because before it, they spend a lot of time setting up and addressing the characters, and it is almost like a drama rather than a sitcom, really. And I do think it gets a bit more cosy, and one episode stands on its own, really, as series three progresses. I don't think there's any point at which it goes completely central TV, 7pm, <laughs> summertime, <laughs> first series I'm of the sitcom. Series 4, episode 1, it gets damned close. Okay, well we'll, well, well, we'll come to that. And of course, there is a bit at which it becomes just pure crackerjack, but that, that that's atypical at the end of one episode. Oh, but dear. You did try to warn me about that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, okay. I think I know what you're talking oh, yeah. about. <laughs> Does it involve a dream? Uh, yeah, maybe, yes. Okay, so that being said, of course, yeah, if we're going to start, series three, episode one is well up to usual standards. Yes, 
Yeah, manure. Manure? Yes. You said manure. Manure. Oh, you know what then? (laughs) It means I haven't put any notes for manure. No, sorry. Series three, episode two. That'd be the one I was thinking. Oh, I see. Right. Uh, Okay. No, we we we, when we were watching manure, we were sort of saying that that exists as a standalone episode. It doesn't really connect to anything else. Whereas, as you said before, series one and two, they've got that story arc going. You've got the business with Andrew in the Open University course, which evolves over time. You've got Paul with his salon and of course there's a story arc to do with himself here as well so gee how did you find that first episode series three manure if you if you'd never seen ever decrease in circles how would you find that as an opening episode to a series it's a good place to start i guess i mean you do get the essence of what the show's about and the characters from it especially like the paul and martin well it's not really a feud is it but the jealousy from martin i guess I, I think it stands alone very nicely and i think it would be quite a nice one for people to watch if they'd never seen the show obviously sitcoms as with any other kind of fiction be it small screen big screen whatever it is they can take liberties and they can make things happen which just would be impossible in real life I would like to know if it really is possible to shift a skip full of manure in less than 30 minutes. Because that was, you know, Martin's contention that this just wasn't going to be possible, not even for Paul. And yet he manages it. No, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think he'd have to be pretty well connected in order to get that situation done in the space of half an hour. Yeah, I agree. I know he seems to know a lot of people, but he wouldn't really come across to me as the sort of person that knows people that know people that deal with manure and stuff like that really but we do find out later on he's friends with a farmer so he had to get rid of the skip as well didn't he in that half an hour yeah so it is a lot to do in half an hour well less than well it's an interesting point there g this this business about how paul knows a lot of people because we're going to come back to that because there's an episode which that's a a key feature but ultra you were going to talk about episode two which is i think one of the strongest episodes of the series isn't this this is part of the ever-decreasing circles novel. Again, there's nice little things that are not ever fully explored, and I like that. I like that there aren't really big soliloquies where they tell us all of Martin's backstory. There's one bit about a pocket watch. Martin says, you remember what my, my father told me when he gave me this? I'll kill you if you break this. It's just dropped there, but it, it does tell us something about Martin's mindset. And then there's that line where he talks about how fate doesn't seem to like him. Is that line... Out pops baby Bryce. Get him. That's how he views the way the world <laughs> interacts with him. I think both of those lines would have been 10-minute sequences in Derek. <laughs> yes. With appropriate music playing throughout. But this also has continuity with Christmas. In the Christmas special, we heard about Rex Tynan stamping confidential all over Martin's face. And now we get to meet Rex Tynan. Rex Tynan's a slime ball. And he obviously thinks he's Jack the Lad. So who is playing Rex Tynan? There's only one choice. <laughs> right. The question is, and we're actually going to invite tweets about this, at the sitcom club, has Peter Blake ever played a nice character in a sitcom? He has in a commercial. He's played a cool character in a commercial. Oh, what was that for? Pepsi. Oh, right. Okay. Because there I was a tie-in single, and he actually went to go on Top of the Pops and be a real rock and roller. But surely he wasn't able to plug Pepsi on Top of the Pops. No, I think they removed the word Pepsi. It was a bit like that I put my blue jeans on single where everybody knew it was from an advert, but nobody mentions in the song. I'm going to say, actually, that the character that Peter Blake plays in Agony 
although he is trying to be one of the cool kids and what have you, and he's got sort of there's elements of him which are sort of similar to some of the other characters he plays. I think fundamentally he's a good guy in that. But pretty much from Dear John onwards, yeah, he's sort of playing that kind of character. Yeah, and I thought this was one of the strongest episodes of the series. We're going to have to and... break down the plot, aren't we? And I'm sure everybody knows by now, spoilers ahead, but if if you've downloaded the sitcom club, you've already made your mind up about ever-decreasing circles. Okay, so the episode title, Straight Away Clues You, and the episode title is called One Night Stand. And Martin is abroad on a business trip, and Rex Tynan, Peter Blake, sort of smarmy salesman at the same company, he plays a trick on Martin and arranges for a lady to be in his hotel room when he wakes up. And that's all of Actually, we've it. already got our first... A topic we're going to come to next time. The indistinct nature of sitcom infidelity. Because Rex mentions that he's married, doesn't he? Yeah, that does happen. Now, there is that thing in sitcoms about fooling around that never really quite gets to a full picture in our minds. There's not much question in this. Rex has hired a hooker. Yeah, but the point is that Rex is a heel. So it's acceptable. It's still a bit surprising for a 8pm BBC One sitcom. It, it is. That this but... isn't just some girl he picked up in a bar and had a good time with, because he, he mentions about how do you like to make a bit more money. Yeah, but I think the fact that Rex is a heel, this goes back to when we had the conversation before about certain lines in sitcoms and you know how some lines get edited for 2014 transmission and some don't. Quite often it depends on who it is that's delivering it and the context. For example, just the other day I was watching an episode of Saxondale with Steve Coogan. It was an episode of Mark Williams in a guest role. His character does pick up a working lady in a pub. And whereas... Tommy Saxondale doesn't his friend does and, and basically the point is that although his friend isn't like an out and out heel like Rex we're supposed to be wholly in sympathy with Tommy Saxondale and that just wouldn't have been acceptable for him to do that you know because he's in a relationship whereas with his friend okay he does it but it doesn't nowadays doesn't make him like an out and out bad guy here what are we talking about 86 87 thereabouts yeah they've, they've probably gone as far as they could in terms of describing it but yeah, only somebody as sleazy as Rex, I think, could have done that. So Martin wakes up. He is just led to wonder what's happened because the lady in question doesn't say anything. She just says, you know, good morning and so on and leaves. You magnificent animal. And, That's... Oh, yeah, yes. No, there is that, yes. <laughs> Didn't he say something like it was the most wonderful night of my life? Yeah, she does the whole Gallic passion. And Martin is rather dumbstruck. I did say, and actually, I'm going to ask yourself about this, G, before I continue with the plot synopsis for this. I was very much down on Martin in our discussion about series one and two. And I still sort of hold to that opinion because there are certain aspects about his personality that I really dislike. But what do you think yourself about Martin, generally speaking? I don't particularly like him. I can't say I hate him because there's qualities in him that I think most people have. I definitely have. But the way he kind of is with Paul and stuff, it irritates me, really. And the way he kind of sees Anne and treats Anne, that annoys me. He really takes her for granted. But then there's bits that he does in especially like series three and series four and the Christmas special that kind of are warm to him. And I think, oh, yeah, he's not so bad after all. He really does have a heart. But I don't particularly like him. 
Well, Mooncat, I got the feeling last time that you were almost saying that you found Martin unlikable to the point of not really being funny. You find him almost a bit dramatic. The thing about Martin, and I think it's made more clear in series one or two, is that sense that he hasn't always been this bad. There was clearly a time when Martin and Anne were happy and were happy to laugh around and just be a, be a proper couple. Martin's gone this way. Yeah. I think the thing that really set me against Martin more than anything was the episode where he didn't want to go to Paul's party with all those rowdy telegraph readers, as I think he described them, and then he's phoning up and wants to know why Anne isn't back yet and so on. And that kind of controlling behaviour really rankled with me. As, but it gets as, him as nowhere. You say, though, he's, Anne is he, what, smart enough and determined enough that it's he's not even going to successfully spoil her night, never mind control her life. Well, the, the thing that I found interesting about Martin's character in this particular episode is that there's no question about the fact that he's going to tell Anne about what he thinks he's done. There's no possibility that Anne was going to find out because she doesn't have any contact with Rex. So if Martin had just kept Stum, there was no reason for him to think that it was ever going to go any further. And yet Rex must have known when playing this trick on him, he must have known that Martin was going to go and block it I don't think Rex is that aware of the world. I don't think he's that sensitive. I'm not sure he's even really thought of any consequences beyond... Martin going, uh He knows Martin well enough to know that he's not just going to be able to shrug it off. He knows that he's the type of character who's going to be worrying about this and is going to I, sort of... I don't think Rex thinks that far enough ahead. He's a psychopath. Or... I, don't th- I don't think he has any concern. He hasn't thought it through. I think he's I don't just think doing he's it for really... his own amusement. Yeah, but I don't think he's even aware of people's personalities. I don't think he necessarily sees people as real people. There's Rex and then there's everybody else. Perhaps so, but I'm, I'm just, my reading of it was that I, I think that he sort of knew that Martin wasn't just going to be able to shrug it off, but perhaps not. But either way, there's no question about it, the fact that Martin is going to tell Anne, because when he comes in, I mean, he's just shell-shocked, and yet he didn't have to. If there was anything, if there was anything conniving in, 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 about Martin's uh, personality, if he had that kind of personality, he could have just kept him about it, and it wouldn't have gone any further, but he couldn't, and it wasn't as if Anne had to, you know, get it out of him. He just volunteered the information straight away. <laughs> this is where it gets weird. We were talking about this when we were watching this episode. As I just said, I, I didn't like Martin series one and two. I've warmed him a little bit in these later series. And yet the people that are most attracting my ear in series three and four are Howard and Hilda. Because I think I think I said to yourself which at one point, it's always bloody them. It's always them. Every damn thing. You could just trace it all back to them. Somehow, all the trouble is, is emanated from them. And this, and this occasion, they're supposed to be his friends in the second that he tells but them. B- before that, before that point, we have the bit where he tells Anne that, he's, that as far as he's concerned, he's been unfaithful. That doesn't play like a sitcom. I'm not sure there are even any necessarily funny lines. No, it is more like a soap, I guess, really. And the audience laugh. The audience know. Now, because they know they're watching a sitcom, because they know they're watching series three of the popular ever-decreasing circles, they laugh at lines that could be a play and is genuinely angry. There is a lot of emotion going on in that scene. Like I say, it's not particularly funny. But that's when I start to like Martin, I guess, because you admire that he's decided to be honest to Anne because he obviously loves her and he respects her. And... 
because the audience is watching a sitcom without anybody having to say it, they sort of know the confines in which this is going to operate. So yeah, they do laugh a lot. Can I mention the- Milton Berle and Barry Took? I think it was Barry Took. Barry Took is talking with Milton Berle before a big show. And Berle says that there is a point where you get an audience into such a state, they'll laugh at anything. He said, give me a gag, any old gag, and two words. So Barry Took says, um, this jacket is virgin wool. It comes from the sheep that can run the fastest. And the two words, last Tuesday. Bill says, okay, enjoy the show. I think Took might have even been in the wings rather than in the audience. So Milton Bell is doing a show and it's going down really well. And he gets to a certain point and he looks at the wings, nods to Took and says, hey, everybody, how do you like the jackets? Virgin wool came from a sheep last Tuesday. The audience laughed. <laughs> I think there's an element of that going on here. They've been conditioned by two series rather than just the, the, the episode as it's run, but because they know it's supposed to be funny, because they know the, these are funny characters, at no point does it occur to them to just like stay silent and go, oh, God, something's gone wrong here. And then Martin are definitely going to split it. Well, of course, they, they know how... How would you have played that? At what point would you lose an audience? If every scene from that scene onwards was just played deadly straight, what point would they stop laughing and getting uncomfortable? Do they actually start talking amongst themselves at any point? <laughs> anyway, sorry. Now, now yes, we, we do learn, we learn things about Martin's friendships and his rivalry. I, I'm really surprised at... Well, you're critical of Howard and Hilda in these two series, aren't you? Because they do become a bit whatever the plot requires them to be. Yeah, well, okay, well, here's the thing. Let's fast forward to the end of the episode for just a second. Because we've got Howard coming out and saying he's punched Rex because he's so annoyed at what Rex has done. It's almost like there is no in-between with Howard in particular. I mean, he's just... As soon as Martin says what he thinks he's done, Howard just completely disowns him, sends him to Coventry, doesn't have anything to do with him. It's almost as if he'd said to Howard, me and Hilda have been having a way behind your back. That's what his reaction's like. And yet then, as soon as he realises he's in the wrong, he goes all the way to the other extreme and does what no one else has done in order to effectively sort of apologise. And it's not the only time that that happens in these two series. There are occasions when he reacts in a strange way. It's almost as if... He's got that sort of middle plane where he's just being bloody irritating most of the time. But then after a while, you'd start to think, should I say this to the two of them? Because I'm not quite sure how they're going to react to this seemingly you know, innocuous information. It doesn't do anything. To, it doesn't affect their friendship, which is weird. After we've had the scene with Anne playing as it would probably play in real life, we then go back to the sitcom almighty reset button. It hasn't changed things between the Bryces and the Hughes. The thing hanging over the series as a whole is that thing of, would Paul try and seduce Anne, run away with Anne? I think Peter Egan has claimed that the first series was going to end with them running away together, which I can't believe was ever a serious, solid suggestion. That was talked about, wasn't it, on the Comedy Connections, if I remember rightly? Yeah, but I can't think that Esmond and Larby would be so tin-eared because it, it would sour everything that had gone before. Even if you're only writing it as a six-part miniseries, I, th- I don't think it would be a satisfying ending. Anyway, I think here Paul would have the field to himself if he wanted to. He just told Martin, well, I think the best thing is really for you to pack your bags and get out of town. But he doesn't. Paul behaves like a grown-up. 
I think almost immediately Paul suspects that nothing's happened because his whole thing is let's you know let's piece this together. He wants enough details that there's no doubt in his mind that Martin did what he thought he did. Did Paul not get a glimpse of Rex earlier on, just as they were leaving, and he's already sort of been able to size him up and thinks this is somebody who is a bullshitter. This is somebody who's untrustworthy. So I suspect that as soon, yeah, as soon as he's then realised that he in some way figures in this equation, then there's something amiss here, there's something going on. But yeah, no, you're you're right. I mean, he really he doesn't take advantage of the opportunity at all. He does keep on telling Martin repeatedly that he he's his friend, and it seems to be Martin is almost sort of pushing back and saying, "Do you mean that? I mean, what, really?" It's just Paul's way that Martin can't quite relate to. I felt that was one of the the strongest episodes and it's it's got a, a nice conclusion and I'm now wondering what the sitcom would have been like if it had been Rex moving in next door from episode <laughs> one onwards instead of Paul. I think Martin and Anne would have moved by episode three. <laughs> okay, now you're saying that there was a possibility that, that Paul and Anne would have gone off with each other at the end of series one. How would the audience have reacted if you replace Paul with Rex throughout the whole of series one. Rex behaves like he behaves in this episode throughout the entire series, and then Anne and Rex run <laughs> off with each other. I think that there'd be a revolt. I think the, the audience, audience would have moved on by <laughs> episode three. <laughs> okay, so, gee, what other episodes stand out for yourself in series what? I, I have a word here on my notes. The, that is the word. No, it's, not the, it's not the same word that was on Martin's notes, is it? It is actually, yes. <laughs> Just to remind me of that bit. But it... I was going to say the one night stand one's probably the one that does stand out the most because for me it felt like Paul kind of knew Martin properly, like inside out, better than maybe Howard did because obviously he didn't take what he said at face value and all this. But then, like you say, there's the element to kind of knowing what Rex might be up to. But as for others, the one where. He saves his little boy, he saves. He's a little girl from Drowning. Little girl, yes. yeah. yeah. That one, I thought that one was quite good. Uh, that's, that's a, again, it's a nice standalone episode, which, yeah, it is really, really interesting to see the way that Martin changes over time. And what is it that suddenly makes him change? Because when he comes back at first, he's not really wanting to talk about it, is he? It's when the reporter comes round and, and says, you're a hero. When he's having his picture taken, initially he's a bit, you know, oh, I've never had my picture taken for the paper before. And then at the end, he's like pushing Anne out of the shot and doing a pose. It's strange, actually, because you sort of, yeah, over the course of this particular series, you've got sort of extremes where it's actually, it's quite nice in a way that One Night Stand and Local Hero do not immediately follow one another. And you've got a bit of an in-between because if you've just had an episode where where Martin is playing a rather sort of downtrodden figure in that episode. You don't immediately next week want to go to a situation where he's just pissing everybody off. So you've got a nice buffer in between with the episode where Paul is suggesting he's going to leave and Martin's worried about his neighbours. Well, episode three's a strange little hybrid of classic ever-decreasing circles and Terry and June-style ever-decreasing circles. Actually, you remember my... I had that theory in series one, my metafictional theory, that Anne is actually from our world... And doesn't realise that at some point she's she's crossed over into sitcom land. And the new neighbours they get. Nobody acts that way in real life. So there is this bit where Anne and Paul are the only normal people at the table when they're all having the conversation about favourite jams. 
Oh yes, um, Dan and Diana. Dan and Diana. Yeah, and, Dan and Milton John's doing his extra wimpy voice. <laughs> but then you've got little bits that are slightly stronger gags than you'd get in a fairly vanilla sitcom. <laughs> There's that bit where they're talking about what everybody's favourite jam is, and now it says, I'd have to go for Hilda's Cherry. And there's a moment of silence, and then a little ripple runs through the audience. <laughs> as, as some of them get it, and some of them just <laughs> don't. I did wonder in that, because I'm always intrigued to see if something changes halfway through a series, if there's a suggestion that there's going to be like a new addition to a group that's already established or something like that, I always sort of wonder, will this be atypical? Will the new people actually stay put, for example? And obviously that wasn't the case in this instance, but I was sort of thinking... It ends like a dead army, doesn't it, really? Okay, that's 29.55 now. Bye! (laughs) (laughs) But the key bit is that the fundamental issue has been solved, and then we just have this other issue with Pike having, you know, (laughs) I don't know, a makeshift petrol bombs strapped around his neck he's got a match in his hand or something like that and everybody's screaming at him and then you have been watching I suppose you could say that that episode House to Let again don't mean this in a derogatory way but it's a third episode so, but do we have a th- do we have a theory about Martin's notebook I don't personally gee what do you think what what do you mean um, you know the, the, the scene in this episode where he says Hilda, he's pointing at the notebook and he says to Hilda, what is that word there? And Hilda looks at it and says testicle. Yeah. And then he says no, not that word, that one. Now it never never gets referred to again. Uh, I love no that. Explanation I love given. that as well. <laughs> they don't. It's a little bit like if you break this pocket watch I'll kill you. They don't mine it. Yes. But also as you said, Ocho, Martin isn't embarrassed as well. He's not going, oh no, no, no. It's, it's not like, it's not doing the, the usual yeah. gag about you know, or I didn't want him to see that. I put it on a piece of paper. He's just like, no, 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 that one. <laughs> does Martin basically, does he have a running commentary of sort of thoughts in his head that he has to write down? I does think he he's transcribed he some graffiti that he's seen. <laughs> <laughs> and this will form part of his letter to the management of whichever building he was in when he's... I'm wondering if he's been stumped by a crossword clue earlier that day and the answer's just occurred to him and he doesn't have the crossword to hand so he's written the word down. (laughs) What is he reading? (laughs) Well, we know it's not the telegraph because he doesn't he doesn't like telegraph readers. So okay, what do we think Martin reads? I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight for the Daily Mail. I think he's a a mail reader. I was gonna say the Daily Mail. Well, we'll talk about Martin's politics. Right now, actually, I'm just looking at my notes because, yeah, we've played through it. There's an interesting bit in this episode where Martin Smith looked weird and ridiculous for being too right-wing. Okay, it's the 80s. We've got lots of alternative comedy, but in this kind of suburban sitcom, everybody's fairly conservative. It's not questioned. And yet here, Martin is saying things like about the local MP who, as far as we can tell, is a conservative. He says, we've seen his true colours, a rather nasty pink. It seems strange to have something like that in a show of this kind. Well, I suspect that in this case, it's not so much to do with Martin being right-wing as putting two and two together and making five. So he's, in some way, he's thinking that a campaign to increase funds for open university students could in some way be some sort of 
communist sympathising plot. But his little speech earlier on, which is, uh, oh yes, of course, they're protesting against something, they protest for something, and that, oh, I'm sure they can afford their 200 cigarettes. They're all Daily Mail talking points. He's reacting, he's reacting against them because he's on the outside of that group. And I suspect that if at some point Anne had sat Martin down and said, you know, there's actually quite a lot of nice little courses you might be interested in this this open university. And if he spotted one that he particularly liked, then he could probably turn that entire situation around uh, and say, you know, what what could be what could be a higher calling than, than broadening the mind uh, and, and, and education for all and so on. And, and he would actually be sort of turning that to his advantage. But because he's outside of this group, he just suspects. He just, what are they up to? What, what's going on? Again, this might be an instance of behavior to fit the plot rather than something that's a key part of his characterization but i think that in this case i don't really think that martin thinks like that i'd say that martin and i suppose you could say probably all the characters to some degree are small c conservatives and as much as that's the thing i think he holds a lot of the same opinions as the audience would have held and it's strange that he's being made to look ridiculous for holding these opinions. I think that the reason that he's so sort of manic in this case is because, again, it's something that's sort of out with his control. He's worried about um, Anne going off and doing this. He's worried about what Paul's influence is and so on. And he just wants to find out. He's just grasping at straws trying to find something about this. What's going on here that I can't figure out? But then there's other times. I mean, he thinks that the Daily Telegraph is for cosmopolitan liberals and he thinks les dawson is an alternative comedian (laughs) (laughs) gee you said as soon as i said there what newspaper would martin read and you said yeah i think he'd be a male reader now here's an interesting paradox is that the daily mail would be one of those newspapers which constantly rallies against what they would call health and safety culture and you've always got the man coming in to tell you not to do this and to do that and so on and so on and i actually suspect that martin would probably be sitting there reading that and agreeing with it and not actually realizing that without having an official position so he's not like he's got a local council badge but he is the worst type of that person because he's always going around trying to organize everything and spotting things and saying ah you should consider this and consider that and have you measured this and i think you'll find that that's actually a couple of centimeters out and so on i suspect that he probably wouldn't pick up on that if he was reading some story about some officious council chap who was making a nuisance of himself but yeah he's very much that sort of person who is spoiling everyone's fun because he's obsessed with detail I don't think Martin's really a political animal, really. I suspect that he's going to have an opinion about most things, but I don't think he's really coming at it from a sort of ideological position, is he? No, I wouldn't say so. I think he's more concerned with what's going on within the close and just the close and not like worldwide and within the country. It's just what's going on in his little area that he sort of has control over because he doesn't have control over what else is going on in the rest of the country. What is it that Anne is studying at the OU? 20th century studies. Right. That's suitably vague that that's going to cause Martin concern because then he's going to start thinking, rather than actually inquiring and saying, okay, well, what does that entail then? He's going to start sort of filling in the blanks. Isn't there a line where it's something about she suspects that Martin doesn't entirely approve of the 20th century? Yeah, it's suitably vague, but it does give her an excuse to have a book about Soviet history and also later on, a book about Jackson Pollock. Things that are sure fire going to wind Martin up. 
So what, what do we think, for example, of Martin's outlook on things like the arts? He knows what he likes. <laughs> Has Martin ever expressed an interest in any type of music, for example? Was he... No. If, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Anne has to go to a concert with Paul because Martin's forgotten about it. It's obviously not important to him. It's not even a matter of that he likes the light classics. Does he even have a sound system? Not that I recall. I don't, I don't think that he really fits into any kind of category like that. I mean, he was more interested. Well, there's, there's an interesting bit here as well about how culture's changed. Anne, who we're going to presume is only in her late 30s, doesn't know what heavy metal is. <laughs> I've got to admit, I'm not entirely sure about what it is myself, but yeah. It's not even like grindcore. She was just confused by the phrase heavy metal. And even Paul doesn't really seem to know what it is. And you'd have thought that Lemmy would be a mate of Paul's. I was just going to say, I didn't really see any reason for Anne to know what heavy metal was, really. But but now, in 2014, somebody in their late 30s... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. ...knows the it's name of every genre music. of popular music... At least the main headings. Well, I blame Radio 2 because Radio 2 went all modern about, what was it, 2001 or thereabouts and started having all these rowdy presenters like Steve Wright on the air. And now they, you know, they play anything. So, well, it's, got... just, it's just something that interests me, the old-fashioned grown-up that you don't really get anymore. I hope you don't take this as an insult, Ocho, but I think that Martin would listen to Sing Something Simple. I think he'd very much like that. I think he'd... I think if he's got a sound system, he'd be sat there on a Sunday afternoon. I don't know, he's got no sound system, he's got no interest. I could imagine him just listening to Radio 4, or not even music, yeah. Radio 4? I mean, uh, don't they have left-wing elements? He probably listens to the Today programme, tuts over it, and then turns his radio off and then doesn't turn it back on until the archers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's conclude Series 3 with the final episode there, Cavaliers and Roundheads, which is... It's a funny old episode. It's an interesting one, and it sort of has a couple of twists and turns in it. I suppose it's one that you would say is a a series finale because you've got a bit of an expanse. We're we're already beginning to run out of ideas a bit, though, because we're back to the idea of Martin is winning, Paul is losing. When we had Local Hero, we had the idea of Martin as a winner. Martin as somebody who is marked out as the kind of guy you want to be. Now they've introduced the element of things are going wrong for Paul. But I don't know, it just doesn't feel that fresh of an idea. It feels like a fairly standard idea, even if we haven't seen it before. Well, there's a little element here of having a nice visual finale for the end of the series. You know, having the the, the, the fete and you know having them all dolled up in the costumes and what have you. It's a nice way to go out of a series, to have something which has got a little bit more elbow room than it normally does. Well, it doesn't necessarily add a great deal to the character development. Series 4. No, oh. no, hang on, no, it's not all bad. But, okay, so, gee, any standout episodes for you in Series 4, first of all? Standout ones? I wouldn't, I don't think any of them actually stand out as much as Series 3 and the rest, um, Series 1 and 2. But I think because this is really comfy sitcom sort of thing, so I do like the episodes and everything. I did like the relaxation one, because obviously Paul's trying to teach him how to relax and I thought that that was quite a funny scene where they're all lying on the floor trying to do yoga or whatever it was to relax. It's a bit contrived though when when they're doing the drip drop drip drop and Martin goes drip for no good reason and then Anne turns against Paul for again no reason we can adequately understand and it ends with them trying to fire a hose at you know on Paul. 
I think it's a really bad beginning to the series because it, it almost sort of announces, right, everything's changed and this is going to be totally bog standard. Whereas, of course, Series 4 has the perfect last episode. Episode 6, fantastic last episode. What a shame. It's a seven-part series. Well, again, I come back to my earlier position. It's always bloody Howard and Hilda. Finally... Martin has learned how to relax and he's not running around trying to organise everything and he's just happy and Martin and Anne are happy together and then bloody Howard and Hilda start ringing the doorbell because they've got to go to the bloody airport. Why can't they just get a taxi for God's sake? And also, I agree with you, Ocho, that it's odd that Anne turns against Paul for seemingly sort of being nice whereas if that was your trigger then you would have gone for Howard and Hilda a long time ago. Because they would have gotten your bloody nerves banging on all the time. But now, Mooncat, I think you're going to have to leave the room now. Okay, right. Because there's something you absolutely hate, isn't there? Series 4, episode 2. Ah, I know where you're going with this. This I've heard you complain many times of the episode where somebody says, Well, that's it, I'm leaving. And it's like, well, this isn't the last episode of the series, and I can see in the Radio Times that you're still in the cast list next week. The, the key bit is, what day of the week does this show go out? If it goes out on Monday or earlier, it's okay. If it goes out on Tuesday or later, I've already got the Radio Times for next week, and I can see the cast list. But also, it doesn't even matter if you got the Radio Times. You know that Paul is not going to leave in episode two. <laughs> this is true. But I'll look at that episode, Goodbye, Paul, as... In a nice way, it's like Martin returning the favour for Paul getting him out of Stuck in Series 3 with Rex Tynan's larks. Yeah. Because, yeah, uh, there's nothing that Martin would like to see better than the back of Paul and, and what have you, and then he'd have his little kingdom all to himself again. It starts out silly with him trying to hold his breath for four minutes. That seems a bit over the top. But then again, we have our... How do we describe this? Light, dark... There's some dark stuff in there that is just powdered across the death of poor Mr. Ruggles. He suffocated doing a schnozzle Durante impression. <laughs> I also like the way they say schnozzle yes. Durante every time, <laughs> rather than Jimmy, just to push it a little bit further. <laughs> Paul's very well behaved, actually, in the pub. Yes, yeah. And Hilda, who says, I'm glad that thing came off his face. Paul does not ask. Paul doesn't say anything. He does not want to know more. I mean, the story of Mr. Ruggles is really there to give a nice thematic unity to the whole episode about Mr. Lazenby later on. Actually, oh, can we have a weird little thing tying things together? You know how we say that famous people don't exist? Richard Bryars does not exist in the ever-decreasing Circles universe. Because otherwise people will be saying, Martin looks a lot like Richard Bryars, doesn't he? In Local Hero, when they're talking about a film of Martin's life, and Martin says, it's a shame Leslie Howard died. Mr. Lazenby is played by Leslie Howard's brother, Arthur Howard. Well, I thought it was interesting. Wouldn't you have loved it if just you weren't absolutely concentrating on it, then you would have missed it. But wouldn't it have been lovely if just for once the television was playing away in the corner and it was a good life theme that was playing? Just for like a couple of seconds or something like that. And then, okay, if you really want to labour it then, how does Martin react? Does he say, oh, that's a brilliant show that isn't it isn't that, isn't that marvellous I do like that one himself that fella <laughs> I suppose this tied in with the Rex episode from the previous series again they sort of underline that deep down they're all fundamentally good people and okay an opportunity presents itself to Paul he doesn't take it an opportunity presents itself to Martin he does the right thing I think he does the right thing for Mr Lazenby's sake yeah, exactly, yeah, and he doesn't want his death on his conscience. 
Can I just mention, of course, that Lesenby's hardware shop, I think that's an acceptable break from reality because it is a parody of old-fashioned shopkeeping and I think even then it wouldn't have existed. Much as I've defended saying Arkwright's store really does still exist. I do, do, and every, every sure time Lazenby's existed in the 80s. Well, every time we, we bring up Arkwright's, I always say I've got a place just down the road from me right here and it's an old-fashioned shop of exactly that type and somebody will greet you at the door and ask what it is you're looking for and then they've basically got everything on the shelves and so on. So yeah, they are, they're still around. They're just not quite as common as they, they once were. But... Yeah, I think, I mean, okay, the shopkeeper locally is not as old as Mr. Lazenby. I think I'd be concerned if he was. Did you have any thoughts, G, on that particular episode, any particular aspects of Martin's? I do agree with what you were saying about how this part made me warm to him, because obviously he did the right thing, whether or not he did it for Paul or not. I personally think it's because he didn't want Mr. Lazenby's death on his conscience. But no, I really like that aspect. It does make him a more three-dimensional character I guess because he's not just horrible he does do the right thing and for the right people and he knows what the ramifications are going to be he knows that by doing this nice thing for one person this is going to have a knock-on effect but perhaps part of me sort of thinks that Martin and Paul are never going to be best buddies but as we saw with the episode in series three when there was a possibility of him getting new neighbours then perhaps you're thinking at this point there's a little bit of the best of the devil you know at the back of Martin's mind that I think also because he knows how much like Howard and Hilda like Paul and how he is good for the close and obviously the close is one of Martin's drives I guess in his life and he knows that if he's still there that's good for the close and he wants the close to be the best it can be I guess and so maybe that's Another reason why he chose to help him out. And then we come to episode three, Stuck in a Loft. Name says it all. Yeah, that, that, that's an unusual one in as much as you've got another character who comes in just for that one episode, first of all. Bit of an oddity, that one. Talking about acceptable breaks from reality, 738 men went to Mo, went to Moa Meadow. Everything just snaps there, really. <laughs> also, Paul's new girlfriend is a little bit too free-spirited. <laughs> What kind of weekend were they expecting? I don't really know. I mean, okay, I know that Martin thinks... I made that sound more exciting for people who haven't seen it than it really is. It's just more her walking down in her shorty bathrobe. Well, Martin thinks that Paul belongs to some secret swingers club anyway. He's always suspected that from day one, so it probably wouldn't surprise him. It was still Paul, but it wouldn't surprise him if he ended up that the Paul's actually arranged a, a secret party going on at the place. Mooncat, did you ever get around to watching episode one of the other one? Episode, I've seen episode one of the other one, yeah. Yeah, which we'll have to do properly sometime, but that's another Esmond and Larby sitcom starring Richard Bryars. And again, we've got that situation where Martin is winning and Paul is not. Paul's out of his depth in the countryside. Martin turns into Ralph from the other one when he gets overconfident. Well, you've seen me do it. That's why in our map of the universe, I decided that Martin and Ralph are related somewhere. Well, let's do the other one properly sometime. Especially as that's got that flaming ending. Oh, we'll come to endings later. Stuck in the Loft is a perfectly okay sort of episode. It doesn't really add anything in terms of character development and so on, but it's perfectly good oh, as a standalone oh, 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 oh. What were we saying about Terry and June? Neighbourhood Watch, which has a plot very similar to an episode of Terry and June that appeared a few months before this went out, and then we haven't nailed down the dates, but sometime in 1988, 
ever-decreasing circles and Terry and June got repeated and the two Neighbourhood Watch episodes went out on the same night and the BBC had to apologise. Neighbourhood Watch, again, there's similarities here, isn't there, with Local Hero because we've got sort of, yeah, Martin sort of becoming more and more and more involved in the situation to the point where, you know, he thinks he's actually been really helpful by staying on the phone for two hours with the police sergeant and what have you and reporting practically every single speck of dust in the area. It is a bit of an oddity, the, the similarity. I mean, in the Terry and June episode, the thieves actually get away with it because they've sent them off, they've, they've put the tickets in their car windscreen, they've gone off to the field, they've come back, the place has been emptied. But then John Junkin, the police officer, comes around and says, OK, we've nabbed them. Because you can't have a Terry and June episode ending on a downer, that's not possible. But, yeah, in this instance, Paul to the rescue. He's too clever by half, that Paul. Not only does he know everybody, but also he's, you know, he's... He went along with it just enough for the episode to work. If Paul had twigged earlier, then the episode would have finished early. Well, so be it then. <laughs> it only lasts for 17 minutes. I'll have to fill in. So Martin is taken in by this bogus police officer, but when he's ringing the real police, he never mentions it. He never says, oh, by the way, Inspector Sansos come around to give us some... I suppose there's the embarrassment. Forget I said anything. There's an explanation for that, but... Again, I'm noticing that there's repetition here, because even in Stuck in a Loft before, you've also got Martin's Pride Before a Fall as well. So, yeah, again, there's a sort of recycling of ideas. But actually, I meant to say something about Stuck in a Loft because we were saying earlier on, G, about how Paul knows everyone and there's, he's always got that sort of, oh, I've got a mate who, whatever. Who knows a mate, yeah. Yeah, and of course, in this instance, he is actually out of his element. You know, Martin does understand how the fittings and fixtures work in this environment and, yeah, Paul is something of a fish out of water. And... I suppose you couldn't do that too many times because Paul can't really be allowed to fail. I do wonder... I wonder Let's if... skip the footpath. <laughs> now, there's, are you there's not much to say about that episode. Are you, quoting, are you quoting a line from that? Are you actually saying, you know, oh, let's <laughs> skip the footpath, go around the yeah. long way. I wouldn't be surprised if Howard and Hilda did skip together. Yeah, probably. <laughs> hand in hand, yeah. Okay, so then we've got Singing the episode. Nymphs and Shepherds come our way. <laughs> so then we've got the episode that Ultra you felt should have been series finale, and it certainly does feel like one, doesn't it? Well, no, you said it should have been. I'd never, I hadn't really given it much thought before. Did I say it? Oh, okay. Well, it does, doesn't it? It really does feel like... So, so as we've said, the, the thing is is that so stuck in a loft, we're back to Cavaliers and Roundheads. Paul is out of his depth, Paul is losing, Martin is winning. It can't last. And jumping to conclusions is a return to the situation of One Night Stand, just inverted. And again, we're back to, would Paul run away with Anne? He's got an open goal, and he's still... The the really interesting thing is that when Howard and Hilda confront Paul, saying, you're having an affair with Anne, Paul's actually angry. It doesn't last, but you can... Howard and Hilda sort of take a step back. He doesn't sort of do a little smirk and go, hmm, well... <laughs> Again, he puts in his best efforts to get Martin and Anne back together. You wonder, has Martin, in a way, sort of rehearsed this scenario in his mind ever since Paul arrived oh. in the close? Does he sort of think, oh, I knew this yeah, was going to happen you, one day? I'm wondering if Martin's rehearsed this ever since he became a couple with Anne. If he's always thought this was going to happen one day. Even then, we've got unacceptable breaks with reality when Anne does that thing at Howard and Hilda. Right, that's a bit jokey, and you've just been told 
that Howard and Hilda have dropped a marriage-wrecking piece of false information on Martin. You should be shouting at them. Okay, she doesn't quite know yet that Martin's packed his bags, but it's a weirdly jarring bit of business. There's a broader aspect here as well, which I'm actually, I am sort of struggling to think of any examples of this right now, which is annoying because there must be thousands of them, but the, I suppose you'd say it's the sitcom trope of actions and behaviour of characters which can be easily sort of dismissed and, and, and can get sort of mild annoyance from another person, but then can be easily dismissed, whereas in real life they would have a catastrophic effect and probably would wreck friendships and relationships and so on. Or at least be something that, that just caused a lot of upset. I was saying before about how I felt that that would have been a nice conclusion to the series. We do have one more episode and that's an oddity because the way it begins, it's almost like it's a completely different show. At first I was beginning to think, was this around about the time they had the asbestos scare at BBC? Because it looked like we're in a different studio and a different set for a different programme. And I was sort of hoping, actually, that it was just going to be like that. I was sort of hoping that the entire thing was going to be all set in Martin's office and was going to be some sort of one-man tour de force or something like that. But no, of course, it wasn't, wasn't like that at all. But that was an oddity. And again, okay, it's got a nice inclusion and what have you. But there's a little bit of sort of after the Lord Mayor show, the way that episode six has ended. Still, you got John Chalice. Well, this is true, yes. Are there any particular sort of moments or like before we get to the Christmas special, do you have any particular moments or lines or anything else at all which would really sort of stand out for you from series three and four? Um, well, going back to the local hero one, what stood out for me for that is the fact that you could really warm to Martin almost straight away, and then obviously when he gets fame hungry, he irritates you, and you just think, "Hang on a minute, you've done this good deed." We all were cheering you on and thought, yeah, you're a hero. And he's just turned that on its head and just disliked him. So I thought that was quite good for that, really, because you got so many different aspects of how you felt towards the character, which you don't usually get in a sitcom. And as we reach the 1989 finale, joining us now all the way from Wellington, New Zealand, is Birdie. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, last time we spoke to yourself was when we were talking about class, and we will be talking about class with yourself again in a few weeks' time. And, of course, we're going to get to Richard O'Sullivan's Trouble in Mind, which I know everyone's really looking forward to. But hold your horses, Zeb. Before we get to that classic, you know, we we (laughs) must persevere with the the BBC stuff. So, Buddy, I know that you've just watched the Christmas special in advance of our chat today, but do you remember actually seeing this at the time? Uh, Yes. Yes, I do. And what were your initial thoughts about it? Because I mean, it, is, it is quite nice to get a sitcom that actually does have a full-on ending that ties up all loose ends. I can't remember uh, what I thought at the time, but uh, watching it back the other night, it made me want to go back and watch the previous series, actually, <laughs> particularly three and four. It just seemed a nice way to tie up everything. And it is nice to think of the new life, going off and having a kid and stuff, though. You kind of wonder what kind of father Martin's actually going to be. But um, it was actually quite a cosy episode. I can see why it was broadcast at Christmas. And it doesn't suffer from that problem that a lot of sitcoms have when they have an extended edition. It doesn't really have a lot of padding. This show, I think, actually works by having a bit of elbow room. Do you know what I mean? So you have your doubts about Martin's future, or at least the, the happiness of his marriage and child. I think uh, 
as a father, I can just imagine he's going to drive Anne mad. He's going to have the books. He's going to want to find exactly the right way to do everything. Though he said he wanted a girl because he's been a boy all his life, I can imagine that if he had a boy, he would be out there in the back garden showing him how to play cricket and stuff. Um, I think a girl might baffle him. Yeah. What I did think was if Martin was around now and had access to the internet, he would be absolutely impossible. He'd be on all the parenting sites telling Anne what to do. But he'll be a good father. I just think he'd be constantly reloading the Wikipedia entry for valves and re-editing well, it. Well, this is... Like I, I was going to say, he, he would be a Wikipedia moderator, wouldn't he? And he wouldn't... I don't think he would just limit himself to the valves page. I think that he'd probably have at least 500 of them bootmarked that he just slitted on a cycle every single day. But I'm wondering about if he had a son and they'd be teaching him how to play cricket and rugby and so on. Because I think there's only two ways that he's going to go, but I'm not sure which way he will. Either he's going to end up as competitive dad, like Simon Day in the Fast Show, or he's going to try and sort of uh, vicariously live his youth again through his son and he's going to want his son to be the very best he's going to want his son to be the, the captain of the cricket team rather than just having an interest in it or the captain of the rugby team or whatever it is uh, we've learned things about Martin's relationship with his father or rather little implications that his father was a cruel and cold man I'm basing that on like two lines but actually Mooncat the, the picture you're now painting for me is an English version of King of the Hill right <laughs> Have you ever watched King of the Hill particularly? Not in any great detail, but I've seen it. There is this episode where, I don't know where he keeps it, but he goes in, and this this is basically like when Bobby was born, or maybe even just when he was conceived. There's the trophy cabinet he built that says, Bobby Butch Hill. (laughs) And it's empty. I think Martin's probably wanted to succeed. I don't think he'll be a competitive dad, but I think he'll be anxious for him. He will worry about him being popular. He will worry about you know, being bullied, not being good enough, that sort of thing. Quite a protective dad. Now, before we continue with our chat about the Christmas one specifically, just tell me a little bit, Bordy, about how you view, because we've, we've been talking just now about how we've seen like the characters evolve and what have you over time, so tell us a little bit about how you view the characters and what you're sort of taking them, I mean, begin obviously with, with Martin himself. Martin, I've never met a Martin, I don't know if anybody really knows a Martin, he reminds me a bit of, you know, my parents, they were very involved in um, community centre life you know involved in committees and stuff like that our next door neighbor was the uh, secretary for the local football club and he was always issuing pieces of paper having minutes and stuff like that it's something i associate with older people i guess i think he does have a little bit of ocd about him doesn't he Uh, but he's basically a kind man i can see why Anne's with him because he does have the he's a very good man he's not very exciting but um, maybe that's not what she needs i think Anne's. well we learned in series two that it was it was the fact that he was able to reorganise her life at a time when her life had fallen apart that put them together. They go well together. They're not the Howard and Hilda, are they? You know, exactly the same and total dependency on each other. But they, they work well together. She gets what she needs from him to a degree. And um, he, he obviously cares about her very much. Paul is the interesting character. I was thinking yesterday, I couldn't see why he was living there. <laughs> he could live anywhere. Why that house? <laughs> Did we say this in series one and two, that that would be the new challenge for him? Because, he, you know, he'd owned a bar in the tropics, he'd been in the army, he'd been a big success, but being a suburbanite would be 
quite new for him and quite, let, let's see if I can make a go of this. And indeed, part of that, let's see if I can take a back seat. I'm not going to organise everything. He comes across, as, as the series has gone on, it was a bit of a, um, not Jack the Lad exactly, but a bit of a rogue, I suppose. But you can see towards the end that he's got the genuine affection uh, for both Anna Martin. Um, he's still not mischievous, but it does make me laugh when a couple of times in the Christmas episode, Harold's justification for Paul being involved is, well, he is Paul. Like he's just, <laughs> but he, he can't help himself. Um, but he's got a genuine affection. I think that's what you got out of the end, that he might have been a disruptive character, but he's just as much as part of that close set as the others by the end. Now, okay, so what about Howard and Hilda? Because I said earlier on that they do drive me ever so slightly to distractions, particularly in these lastter episodes, because I've sort of the opinion of basically that everything that goes wrong, they're usually front and centre, somehow. They're adorable. They give the broad comedy, don't they? They're probably not the best well-rounded characters. You kind of like that comedy, eh, Mooncat? Oh, yes. No, I don't mind broad comedy at all. No, I've got no problem with that. But no, I'm thinking things like, for example, the time that Martin thinks that he has been unfaithful to Anne, and then Howard just turns on him with ferocity that you wouldn't really think he was capable of. And you sort of think, you know, he's, he's supposed to be his friend. I mean, you think that he would give him the benefit of the doubt, but... Very straight up and down, isn't he, Harold, though? Now, I'm going to take over the chair for a moment here. I know you're the one who normally asks the questions, but this was the first time you'd seen the last episode, wasn't it, Mooncat? So, so you'd followed the saga over the last year. Are you happy with that ending? Yes. And I do not want any kind of legacy original parent to come along in 2015 and spoil it. No, what was nice about it was the way it closed off and really drew a line under it because it wasn't left open to the possibility that we were going to see them again in a year's time. I don't actually want to know what happens to them. It's good that it's completely closed off. I think I mentioned this before and I think the message board or the post is not there anymore. But I do remember somebody suggesting, well, you know, they brought back to the manor born and... You know, one last special, maybe they could do something with ever-decreasing circles. The child would be grown up now. And someone said, hey, I've got a fantastic idea. So, so we, we visit the Bryces again, and it turns out it's Paul's child. That is the worst idea anybody's <laughs> ever had. But that did give me an idea. It's not doable now, unfortunately. But that gave me an idea of it would be amusing for a special where I decided that the Bryces had a daughter. Special where Martin begins to suspect that Paul is actually the real father because he's the only one who can't see that his daughter is just basically a small female version of him. Martin and his teenage 20-something daughter having the same gestures, speaking at the same time, saying the same things. And yet somehow he gets it into his head that this, this is not his child and everybody else can see it's, it's a clone. But that would be an interesting plot to us because clearly they have had fertility issues. Because Anne's 39, 40, I imagine. So it's a bit mm. funny that Paul comes along and they have a baby. Takes him about five years, so... And I think Paul would use protection. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is the sort of man who would have had a vasectomy at 25 and probably carries the certificate around to prove it. <laughs> I, tell, I liked the uh, Christmas one where um, Martin goes into the health spa and he looks at it like it's a brothel. <laughs> And he sort of creeps around <laughs> and he's really worried about everything. It's just it's so, well, so... um. There is continuity because 
Martin basically said health studios were bordellos. And Paul went, that's a fantastic name. And when we see the sign, he has actually called it the bordello. Oh, right. <laughs> bordello's a good, uh, a good word, isn't it? He should have called it Martin's bordello, just to wind him up. <laughs> oh, I think Paul got a bit less of the wind-up merchant as he went on. The fact that he is he is Paul is helpful, for example, with um, Hilda and the little amulets. Because it comes from Paul, she completely believes that's helping her, you know? So Paul does use his powers for good as well as evil. Or another revival idea. The Bryces discover what it's like to be a mate of Paul's. To find out what it's like to be on, on Paul's, in Paul's little black book and being called in for things. Another idea. This will really have to happen within months of the original ending. Martin moves into a close where he is the Paul. His next door neighbour is actually worse than he is. And and Martin, who of course now has relaxed a little, his fatherhood has made him loosen up, but he's still quite sharp, he's still good at organising things, now finds himself up against an uptight Martin-type figure who's not good at organising things. So we have an excuse for Martin to run back to Paul going, how do you cope with being the golden boy? Now, there are, there are all sorts of ideas that could have been now, mined. Let, let, me, let me ask yourself, G, because I think you mentioned... That idea to me before, Ocho, about the, the idea that, that Martin meets a hyper Martin, so to speak. And I made a suggestion to you, but I was referencing something that you hadn't seen. So, G, are you familiar with the thick of it? I am, yes. Now, you know in, I think it's series three, when Malcolm Tucker is sort of pushed to the sidelines and then David Haig comes in. Uh, you know his character. Now, imagine if Martin was to meet somebody like that. I think that he would take very badly to him. I could imagine a sort of David Haig figure where he is not only as sort of officious as Martin, but also, like you say, Ocho, he's bad at it, and also he can be really offhand with people as well. I don't think that Martin would stand for that. I could sort of see that happening. I could see that Martin would would need Paul's assistance with that. Yeah. That would be really interesting, actually. I'm, I'm sort of surprised that they... Watch. I'm surprised they didn't do that for one episode. You'd sort of think that that would have... That would have occurred. I mean, am I missing anything in series one and two where that kind of thing's happened? One thing, again, don't mean to pick on Howard, but I keep on going back to him. He's got one of the most interesting little scenes in this entire thing because, you know, when sort of Martin's being pompous and saying, oh, this is the last time we shall walk in this cricket ground and so on, and Howard really brings him crashing down to earth with a yeah. thud. And you sort of think, yeah, I can understand what Howard's saying, but I suspect that he'd probably have said it more a often bit than nicer. not. Yeah. yeah, he'd probably try and sort of let him down gently and just sort of say to Martin, well, you'll have a new cricket ground soon and so on and so on, rather than just sort of suddenly becoming Mr. Logic and <laughs> just laying it all out in black and white for him. He's very, very matter-of-fact. Life does go on. He doesn't need anyone except Hilda, really. Well, that's one thing we forgot to mention about the end of Series 4. Howard, who previously was obviously not secure in his work, got turned down for promotion, felt like a loser. He's now been given a much bigger office. Why did I mention that? Nobody cares. Oh, well. <laughs> it's sometimes the case that with these extended episodes and what have you, they really can feel like they're dragging and you think, yeah, there's some serious padding going on here. But I didn't really get that impression with this episode. I liked the fact that it had plenty of space and I suppose you probably could have done it in an hour but why do it in an hour? Why not give them time to actually breathe? Just have some nice little slow moments and some bits of conversation here and there and so on. 
so we talked about Martin and Anne, and they go off and they start the family and so on. What do we think happens to Paul long term? Because Howard and Hilda have got each other, so you know, they're settled. But what about Paul? <sighs> it's a sad story. Well, I mean, the thing is, his problem is that he doesn't like to settle down. But he's going to have to at some point. I think he either ends up where he is, pretty lonely, or maybe he'll go off and live in Spain. I think he'd like to be with his son. Yeah, I think he takes over all the organisation of the close and is so good at it that he gets bored with it. Cause this, is, this is his eternal thing. He needed Martin to be more important than him. Or do you think he's always driving up to Oswestry and crying? <laughs> I don't think he ever visits them. Because he doesn't have friends. But no, he does say that right at the end of the episode, though. Yeah, but you he... know, he's, he's gonna. But... He's just been poor. No, I don't think. Uh, I don't know. Would you? Would Martin want him around when he's got a daughter? He'd be just wondering what's happened when she hits eighteen. <clears throat> <clears throat> That's another plot. Line. Oh, hang on a minute. We forgot to mention the dream sequence in half an office. Should we, should we not mention the dream? Yes, sequence? no. I think well, I think we we yeah we should we should backtrack and okay. So <sighs> you you sort of warned me about this, Ocho. You mentioned to me there's something about this episode. That's all he said, and so I knew that something was going to go down, but I didn't know what. And yeah, <laughs> all I can say is I'm glad the entire series wasn't like that. P- Peter Egan just seems to be getting through it. His acting seems to. St- kind of stopped he's not even necessarily having fun with it it is one of the things that annoys me so we have this in the dream he sees his father but his father is played by howard stanley labor and so it just annoys me when there's the opportunity to bring in a different face i hate adaptations of a christmas carol where past present and yet to come are all played by people we've already seen in earlier scenes what does this say about martin's relationship with his father and with howard Okay, so he's already alluded to his relationship with his father, anyway, with that comment beforehand. I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure. You, you do get instances like this in various shows where things just go a little bit bonkers for ten minutes or so, and you just... I know of, people shouting, it's not real! Yes, yes, that's fine. Yeah, that, that, yeah if, if, but if, when, when they've been so careful to make little illusions and build a character and everything that we know Esmond and Larby just plucked out of their heads, possibly in a moment's inspiration, still fits with everything else that's happened. Something like that that raises more questions than it can answer for no good reason we can see. Is it just whimsy? Or are we actually supposed to take away some idea that his father was a cloth cap and clog wearing brute? I think that scene was a result of a bet between Esmond and Larby. One of them looked to the other and said, I bet we could get Geraldine Newman in stockings on screen. <laughs> Never. Just give me five minutes, I can come up with something. Maybe I'm wrong in this, but I just think that either Howard or Hilda, I'm not talking about any potential spin-off here, I'm just talking about Finn and and Circles. I think that one of them would probably have some sort of secret little secondary life going on like something or someone that they see every once in a while for a few hours or or whatever i'm sort of suggesting that perhaps howard visits you know certain establishments in in london are you saying he uses prostitutes no 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 i wasn't i wasn't gonna go that far or he may be thinking more like that episode of mulberry where we find out that one of them's not having an affair 
Yeah. But having tea. There you go. Okay, I know that they're, you know, the, the perfect couple and what have you, but they've got to have their own interests at some point. They'll drive each other bonkers if they're always in the same house, you know, day in, day out, for God's sake. So I'm sure that Howard at some point will make his excuses and say, I'm just off to my botany club now or something. And then once he disappears out of the close, then... Uh, so what's know, this he's... other person like? Maybe he goes off and meets Rhea from Butterflies. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. make the old Hilda's yeah. off with Leonard. There you go. Oh. Okay, yeah. Leonard's too much this. of a smoothie for Hilda. She'd probably like something exotic. I don't know. I, th- I think Hilda would find Club Blazer and Ascot Cravat kind of exotic. Oh, Nikki Henson again. God. Ah, well. So, G, anything else you want to add in terms of Ever Decreasing Circles itself or these particular writers? What What is it about Ever Decreasing Circles itself which you particularly like? Do you find it's a characterization that hooks you on it or do you find it just a particularly funny show? I think it's just the way the whole cast sort of gel and just spark off each other i think that's what really makes it something special i think the rapport that they all have makes it work really which in turn i guess makes the characters more defined and more realistic um it's always nice when you've you feel that the characters have got a life outside of the 40 odd minutes that you spent with them nice moments oh you know me i always remember that part i can't remember the exact episode but paul and Anne have a little bit of a dance just for a minute, there's that little bit, maybe it's not quite so jokey as it uh, seems to be. I think that's a nice moment. And I had uh, the episode where Martin plays Paul, and we find out Paul, was it Paul or Snooker? You know, for all his bravado and everything, he can't play. That's an interesting one, though, because that is the, the only time that Paul actually tries to psych out Martin with how brilliant he is is the one time he knows he's going to fall flat on his face. And you can read that two different ways. One, it is Paul knows that he's not going to rub Martin's face in the dirt, so at least he can enjoy a little bit of Martin's pain. Or this just shows how much Paul doesn't really care how he looks, how much the whole golden boy thing isn't important to him. So the one time he's going to play it up is because he knows he's going to be able to have a good laugh at himself. That's the way I like to read it. I'm going to say that I really enjoyed watching Everclean Struggles from start to finish. It's, a, it's an excellent show. I'm surprised that I hadn't discovered it before now. And I'm very glad that not only is it repeated on Gold frequently, but it also got a repeat BBC4 just recently as well. I think they've still got some more episodes to go, Ash. I don't think they've had the entire run on yet. And yeah, obviously, track it down. It's available on DVD. Oh, so what would you suggest for further? We always say like further reading, further viewing. So any other Esmond and Larby things that you can suggest that people might want to track down? The other one. We have a character who is the overconfident parts of Martin with a character who is not a million miles away from Howard and played by Michael Gambon. I actually can't think of a Norse sitcom role with Michael Gambon in it. Can you? No. Is there a sitcom about lathes? Well, not as That's his thing. Well, so you say, but we don't know if he was just taking the piss. Well, no, there is a website about lathes. I don't know if it's just lathes.co.uk. There is a website about lathes, and there's a picture of one. It said this is from the Michael Gambon collection. I'm putting this into the chocolate computer right now. Let's I'm saying quantum leap, friend. <laughs> I invoke the law of quantum leap, and we're not even going to explain that because everybody should know by now our history with the upper hand and the quantum leap episode. Okay, so you're right. It is lathes.co.uk, and this page called the Drummond Lave, otherwise known as Little Goliath. And if I do a search for Gambon, here we go. A 
Non-Drummond Little Goliath note the different tool post, an exceptionally original example from the collection of actors of Michael Gambon. There you go. So it's true. We will be back next time i think it's time you start attacking our request pile well yes because that pile is a growing and the floorboards are creaking because stupidly i've had the request pile in the middle of the room all this time so yes i'm not sure do we know what which one we're getting to first or should we I keep, think keep it a big surprise? We'll keep it a secret. Yeah, keep it a big Everybody surprise. can be satisfied to know that this one came from the people. Listeners, when we say we're going to keep it a surprise, it means we haven't decided which one it's going to be yet. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. And you can, of course, follow us, if you're not already, on Twitter at The Sitcom Club. And you can find us on Facebook under The Sitcom Club. And you can also get all of our previous episodes on the website, sitcomclub.com. And we will be back next week with another edition of the podcast, and we will see you again then.